Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie Podcast Season 2. I'm Mario Sakura, and as always, I'm here with uh, TJ Daw, my uh, co-host. And today we are fortunate enough to have our good friend Russ Hudson <laughs> joining us. Uh, Russ, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mario. Doing very right, well great indeed. And how about you, TJ? TJ, tell us where you're joining us from. I'm in beautiful Wells, B.C., population 250. In the mountains, nice and obscure. <laughs> there you go. So TJ's in a pretty remote spot, and uh, so we're, you know we're hoping we're going to do okay with the connection. But so far, so good. So we are really excited today about this podcast because uh, we're going to be talking about somebody who's certainly one of my favorite filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, and we're going to be talking to him through the lens of the Enneagram Type Six and talking about his work through the lens of the Type Six. A couple of quick points here again are, you know, we will talk about what we think Scorsese himself is regarding his Enneagram type. But the premise of the, of the podcast is more about understanding the Enneagram type through a director's body of work. Okay, so um, that's the more important thing. How are the themes of the type six reflected in the work? Uh, that's of interest. So the movies we're going to talk about today are four of the vast catalog of Scorsese. It's amazing how prolific he has been, <laughs> right? Movies, TV series, producing, directing, even acting in films, okay? And certainly a wide body of work as well. But we're going to focus on four movies, Mean Streets, After Hours, Goodfellas, and Cape Fear. Okay, so before we start talking about, I keep wanting to say Spielberg, but this is really the anti-Spielberg after our last <laughs> podcast, but about Scorsese, we want to hear first uh, what it is to be a type six. So TJ, why don't you start us off on what a type six is, and then Russ, you can be happy to hear you expand on that. So yeah, this is a quick overview of type six, striving to feel secure. So sixes are perennially looking for the answer. There's a sense that the right information is out there. And if I ask the right questions, I'll get the right information. If I get the right information, I will know what to do. And the sense that the right answer, somebody else has it and I need to find it. So there's this perpetual self-doubt. I don't trust myself, but I'm looking for somebody who does know. So sixes are often really quick-minded. And this can lead to anxiety. Uh, they, their minds are often forecasting all the things that could go wrong. They might shrink back from the things that scare them. They might rush towards the things that scare them to prove that those things don't scare them. As Russ and Don Riso said in The Wisdom of the Enneagram, sixes are a bundle of contradictions. Anything you can say about a six, the opposite also applies. So sixes can often have a hard time finding themselves with a system like the Enneagram because they're sweet and they're sour. And they're introverted and they're extroverted. And they're <laughs> cynical and they're trusting. And they're loners and they're group-oriented. Sixes often identify with something bigger than themselves. It might be an ethnic identity or a national identity or a religion or a political party or an institution like the church or military or academia or whatever their profession is. Uh, you'll find them scanning for danger a lot. They're inclined to highlight the voice of the minority opinion. 
So they often play the devil's advocate. Some, some schools call the type the devil's advocate. Down the levels, the maladaptive six is jittery and paranoid and reactive, and they might complain a lot or be a wet blanket. They can be reflexively contrarian because nobody tells me what to do. But if you tell me what to do, I'm going to do the exact opposite. They can be prone to us and them thinking. They can be self-sabotaging and self-punishing. And they might become a fanatical devotee to a cause or a leader that promises to take responsibility and give them all the answers. The healthier six, the more adaptive six, they're team players. They lead as equals. They have and sustain authentic connections with others. They're very egalitarian. They have an every man or every woman quality to them. They can be courageous and in tune with their body, with their inner guidance. They can also be playful, fun-loving friends and really showing up well in a crisis. They can be great troubleshooters, and above all, they're devoted to where this whole thing we as a species are going is and wanting to be a part of what gets us there. Great. Thanks, TJ. Um, Russ, what else should we know about sixes? Well, I would say that the big issue for sixes is trust. Always a question, what can I trust in this world? What will be there for me? What will not let me down? I try to be there for others. I try to not let other people down. But is that going to be reciprocated? It's always a question. In a similar way, sixes want to find some way, and, and this is related to what TJ was saying, some way that the world makes sense. Some way that things get, I'm, I'm looking for an orientation to life that makes sense to me. And if it does, then I'm inclined to pursue that, to build on it. But there's always this uneasy balancing act between what I found as some sort of point of stability and sense and the vicissitudes of living in this world. And as we'll see, all of the movies that we're looking at play with that theme. How do you keep yeah. a straight arrow in a world where things are moving around and being chaotic and things aren't going the way you hope. The other way, you know, even in traditional language, we used to be, the word that was used was faith. And, you know, we, we hear that word, we, we think of religious faith, we think of belief, but really that kind of faith, believing in something is just a stepping stone toward this kind of trust in oneself that TJ was referring to that as a six, I'm always looking for. Can I trust that something in me knows the way home? Something in me knows the way forward. And can I stay focused on that, even though everything in the world seems to be pulling me off course one way or another? So, you know, that's the source of a lot of the jitters in six. That's the source of a lot of the anxiety. It's the tension between those two things. You know, I've spent a lot of time teaching in Japan, and J Japanese culture is very six. People sometimes say it's four, and I always say, well, you've clearly never been to Japan. The, and as Japanese talk about their own literature and their plays and their stories, they always talk about the tension between giri and ninjo. Giri meaning uh, duty, responsibility, what you're supposed to do. And ninjo, which is what human nature leads you to. And so you see that very much in six art, that tension between my responsibilities, my duties, my agreements, that which I have taken on, and what my heart wants to go to or what, what my instincts want to do along the way. 
So it's very interesting that in Japanese literature studies, they made that tension very explicit. So I think that adds a little bit of sauce. Yeah, that's great, Russ. Thanks. I always uh, refer to the six as uh, their basic strategy being striving to feel secure. Yeah. So, as you said, it's looking for this stability, looking for solid ground, but never trusting that the ground actually is solid, right? The the ice is never thick enough, okay? So, it's always, you know, touching the, uh, you know, I remember going to the west rim of the uh, Grand Canyon, uh, you know, a few years ago, and there's that glass, you know, thing that you can walk out, the, the glass walkway, <laughs> and, you, you know, and it's like a thousand feet down underneath, and you see everybody... It was when they first go out there, sort of tiptoeing, right, testing it to make sure it's going to stand up, even though there are other people standing on it, but still every single person starts tapping it with their foot to make sure that it's actually solid. And I always think of sixes that way, right? Even though there are all these other people standing there, I'm still going to tap it with my foot to make sure that it's okay. And and I, I completely agree. And, and this was the theme, you know, as I watched these movies again, of, you know, just how foundational that need was to find something I can put faith in, but then not trusting it once I do. Right. Uh, that seems so sexist. So Martin Scorsese, and uh, again, you know what, actually, before we go any further, in case there are any listeners who don't know who Russ is, you know, Russ Hudson is kind of one of the, I don't know, foremost figures in the world of the Enneagram. Russ has made, you know, tremendous contributions, uh, first with his uh, teaching partner, Don Riso, and then, you know, since Don's passing, has done a, a lot more. Russ, tell, tell us where people can uh, find out more about you and your work if they're not familiar with you. Uh, the two main sources online, one would be RussHudson.com. Pretty easy and straightforward. No underline or line or anything, just RussHudson.com. And the other would be EnneagramInstitute.com, which is more a repository for the work I did with Don Riso. So those two places. Thank you. So again, you know, Russ and I have known each other for quite a few years and have, you know, found ourselves delightfully in the same places and, uh, you know, a lot of different times over the years and always enjoyed our company. And, you know, I see Russ is certainly one of my teachers and uh, somebody whose work I still tremendously admire and, and advocate for. So uh, look up Russ if you're not familiar with his work for whatever reason. So um, Martin Scorsese, yeah, one of the great directors one of the real geniuses of film and that was you know again just reinforced for me watching these movies how talented a filmmaker this guy is so famously uh, i don't know how old he is but he's got to be and i would imagine in his 70s by this point he has been making movies since the you know mid late 1960s i was surprised at how many movies were made for hire in his catalog right like cape fear for example was not really a movie he wanted to make but he was hired to make and so that happened he kind of alternated between passion projects and commercial projects that he did you know for hire for a studio and so forth he's also very focused on film preservation right so he's been big in that movement and being a historian of film i mean this is a guy who has probably seen every darn movie ever made right and could you know do an exposition on it and uh you know and and give you insights into things that you couldn't so um again to understand a bit about scorsese he was initially born in queens new york 
early in life, his family moved to um, uh, the Little Italy uh, section of um, of New York. I'm sorry, no, it was the Lower East Side, uh, actually, yeah. which is a little bit different. Um, and uh, so he grew up, uh, he was asthmatic as a child, so he was kind of watching life go by through his windows because he couldn't go out and play with the other kids. And his life, as he tells it, was pretty much going to church and going to movies and watching people outside of his windows, you know, including seeing lots of gangsters, much like Henry Hill, who we'll see in Goodfellas, right? Um, so this informed him. And again, the theme for me that came up is he saw two places of refuge, basically, the church and the movie world, okay? And this theme comes up over and over again in his work, right? This uh, this need for something to provide stability, okay? So um, before we get into talking about the movies, t- tell me about your uh, feelings and experiences with Martin Scorsese's work. Uh, Russ, why don't we start with you and then T? Yeah, I, I think that uh, if I were just to innocently talk about this without, you know, necessarily any reference to the Enneagram, I always associated... Scorsese's films with a kind of tough realism. And one of the things I notice in a lot of his movies, he does not try to present heroes as people without blemishes. Some of the movies, there's almost no likable characters. There's nobody you're going to look <laughs> right. up to. They're, but they're right. like real people that you know. Right. And and they're just acting like people do in the wild, you know. And mm-hmm. so that, that realism and that... And I think there's something in his films that I've, I noticed that by showing people as they really are, you're challenged to find compassion for people who are more like the real people you're going to meet in real life. There, there's no Luke Skywalker in there. There's no shining hero in a single one of his movies. Even Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ is, is human. character. Yeah. So he's he's got that sensibility and always... I think he's always trying to struggle to find what is true and noble in the midst of us humans being such a spectacular mess, our our world yeah. being such a spectacular mess. So all of his movies have yeah. that. All of them make me a little queasy when I'm watching them. I pick up yeah. the kind of nervous yeah. energy he has. It comes yes. right through the movies. Yes. yes, But I find them endlessly fascinating also for the fact that you don't really know what's going to happen. You know, yes. None of these films are yes. filmed by numbers where, where you're going through the standard kind right. of plot arc. Generally speaking, there's going to be some twists and turns you really don't see coming. And some of the people you think are yeah, going to be you, good, they're, they're not so good. And some of the people you thought were awful, right. well, sometimes they have some sides to them that are cool. Yeah, you, you don't know what's going to happen next, but there's a pretty good chance it's going to be awful. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, well, there's in each of his films, well, all the ones we're looking at today, uh, but certainly a large percentage of the films, certainly the ones that are the passion projects, there's this sense of you. Oh, it can't get any worse, and then it does get right. worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So before we talk about the Enneagram type uh, and Scorsese, uh, TJ, general reactions to Martin Scorsese. Yeah, a couple of things that came up watching these and other movies getting ready for this and thinking about his whole career. One is that 
there's very often a tug of war between the spiritual and the material. No matter what the setting is, yeah. there's there's these two forces of life, two forces of life that the characters are struggling with. You know, it's not clear cut. I'm the spiritual person versus I'm the material person that exists inside them. And to build on that, a theme that I find a lot in his movies is ambivalence. So he likes making you watch a character who, on the surface, is repugnant, but that you can't help yourself being interested in and rooting for. And I found a quote that he said: "Very often, yes. I, the people I portray can't help but be in that way of life." They're bad and they're doing bad things and we condemn those aspects of them, but they're also human beings. I find that often the people passing moral judgment on them might ultimately be worse. And that's a very religious point of view. You know, he brings that up is, you know, straight from the Bible. Who are we to judge to point out the speck in your brother's eye while we have a beam in our own eye? And the fact that he grew up very, you know, Italian Catholic and went to seminary school for a little while, you know, and... In a later interview, he said he still identifies as Catholic, not necessarily a regular churchgoer or anything, but like these spiritual frameworks are alive in him as a person and in his body of work. Another thing is that when people hear his name, the first association is probably with gangster movies. And if you look at his body of work, there's yeah. also some movies that have nothing to do with that. There's Kundun about the young Dalai Lama. Or there's The Age of Innocence, a period film from New York in the 1870s. There's Silence. There's... You know, one of the movies we're going to be talking about, which is After Hours. There's a huge variety in what he's interested in. And then there's his rock and roll documentaries. You know, he did a concert movie, The Rolling Stones. He did a documentary mm -hmm. about George Harrison. Yeah. Uh, another one about Bob Dylan. The band. And the band, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's that part of him, too. And so last he's not just one thing, which yeah. you could say about sixes in general. Sixes quite often, you know, like I was right. saying before, quoting Russ, whatever you could say about them, the opposite is also true. But it's very easy to look at him as one thing because there's certain of his movies that just got more notice than others and that have built the reputation. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So going into this podcast, before I started watching the movies and starting to think about it, um, you know, I'd never given a lot of thought to what I felt Scorsese's Enneagram type was. And I think when you watch him in interviews and, you know, see him in commercials, that sort of thing, it seems very seven-ish in a way because, I I mean, he talks so darn fast, right? I mean, I, I can't even imitate the way he talks because it's just so fast and he's so frenetic and energetic and that sort of and kind of fidgety and jumpy. And so I think that it's easy to jump to the conclusion that he's a seven. You can add to that this idea that he's so diverse 
in what he does, right? I mean, gangster films and then a movie about the Dalai Lama and then the Age of Innocence and then, oh yeah, let me do, you know, The Last Waltz or whatever, right? And I'll do a TV show and I'll do this and I'll do that. But when you really start to pay attention to the themes in what he does and you really start to pay attention to what he's talking about in the interviews that he's doing, it's hard to see the seven for me. Right. I mean, you know, when we talked about Spielberg last time with Tom Condon, you know, one of the things we talked about, there's always a happy ending. Right. Even, you know, the, the Holocaust movie had a happy ending. Right. And, you know, in some way. And, um, you know, even Munich, which is probably his darkest movie other than uh, Schindler's List, there's kind of a happy ending tacked onto it. Scorsese doesn't do happy endings, right? Uh, there was a, an interview that I saw that I really recommend, a documentary called Faith, Doubt, and Humanity, okay? Getting to the themes Russ talked about with the type six, right? Faith and doubt are the two, you know, fundamental things. He sees the world as red in tooth and claw. And he said, in my movies, people always pay the consequences for what they do. Right. So those who commit violence have violence done unto them. He said that uh, one priest was talking to him about his movies and uh, uh, he said one of them, I forget which one. He said, I was glad to see that you ended it on Easter, Easter Sunday, but all of your movies have too much Good Friday and not enough Easter Sunday, right? And so, you know, Good Friday is the crucifixion, right? It's suffering, it's the passion, okay? And Easter is the good news, okay? Well, not a whole lot of that in his movie. So, so Russ, tell us why you think Scorsese is, is a six, or at least his, that theme is reflected in his movies in general. Yeah, well, you set it up really beautifully, Mario. Yeah, because it's about those themes, all of his films are consistently. And yeah, he talks fast. But, you know, I live in Manhattan. And in general, we talk fast <laughs> around here. And if you're an Italian-American in from downtown Manhattan, you're going to grow up with everybody speaking fast. That's somewhat cultural. Right. Without getting right. into too many details, Mr. Scorsese had a certain habit for a number of years that tends to speed yes. up speech. And we'll, I'll yes. just leave that to your imagination. But it was well known in the film business. He was a cokehead. Yeah, that's yeah. what you're saying. He was a cokehead for a long time. He was a cokehead yeah. and well known and it. even made yeah. jokes about it. Yeah. I also think, you yeah. know, most sixes I know are pretty high energy people. They're not layabouts ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. they can be very funny. You know, some of my favorite comedians yes. are sixes. But what's a, there's a, yeah. a documentary that you can find on Netflix, I believe, called Pretend It's a City, in which Martin Scorsese is doing a kind of a documentary where he's he's going around with Fran Lebowitz. And he's he's laughing oh, his yeah. he's laughing his butt off. He's having a great time. But like no seven would do, he's totally letting her be the funny one and be the energy one. And she just mm -hmm. goes off and makes her amusing statements, everything. And he's laughing and enjoying it, but he has no need to come in there and be the funny one, which I kind of think if he was a seven, he'd at least be getting into the mix with her a little more than he does in this documentary. Um, but, but I think it really, for me, it comes down to the person's life, their values, um, his, yeah, he's been to tee off what you're saying, TJ, he's been a devoted Catholic, even though not necessarily in an orthodox way. Yet 
his his films are you can't understand Martin Scorsese's films if you don't understand his devotion and the enormity of the imprint of Catholicism on him. And exactly the theme we're talking about. He's looking in this violent, bloody mess of the world. What is a way we can be good in that? How can we be a straight arrow within that world? How do we live Christ's teachings in the midst of such horror? You know, and that's in... Almost all of the mov- all the movies that he put together, not his movies for hire, but all the ones he did are that. And even some of them that were for hire have this theme in them because it's the way he shoots them. It's the what he emphasizes in the yes. story. So all the stuff yes. we talked about about six, whatever he may be personally, everything we talk about thematically about six is there in all of his movies. He's notoriously nervous and high-strung. Yes. It's a reputation. Everything gets him nervous. Everything gets him worked up. You know, he's, he just, but that's a sixth trait. Yeah, so go ahead. I'm done. <laughs> well, go ahead, TJ. Just to build on that, uh, he talked about he's afraid of flying. And a direct quote, he says, usually I'm able to deal with it, but sometimes mm-hmm. I just become completely irrational. So, And this is a guy who's had to fly a fair bit to film in various locations. And one of the ways that it's a lot easier to see somebody's type is when they're at their worst. So reading a great book on the history of the American cinema of the 70s, Raging Bulls and Easy Riders by Peter Biskind, you know, he's profiled in it pretty extensively. And one of the things, uh, there's quotes from him and from people who knew him that describe what he's like at his worst. So a few different quotes. One said, Marty is moody. He has tantrums. He can be difficult at times. You know, if you walk into the editing room without warning, he would jump. He would literally jump and then scream, how the fuck am I supposed to get any work done with somebody just barging in here like this? Uh, He's described as still extremely fragile, really emotionally speaking. uh, uh, Lots of doubts. His feelings are easily hurt. He's quick to feel slighted and slow to forgive. He'll nurse grudges for years. He And this is a direct quote. He said, I was always angry, throwing glasses, provoking people, really unpleasant to be around. I always found, no matter what anybody said, something to take offense at. And if he was hosting people, he'd said, at some point in the evening, I'd flip out, just like when I'm shooting. And kind of at the worst of his drug addiction, he started having paranoid hallucinations. You know, he, he would literally say, I think somebody's watching me or somebody's trying to get in the house. Just the regular Martin Scorsese, yeah. you know, setting all that aside... He's very much a devil's advocate. You know, another quote is he said, I always find the antagonist more interesting than the protagonist in a drama, the villain more interesting than the good guy. Uh, He himself is a bundle of contradictions. One of the movies that we're not going to be talking about, but that I watched recently is King of Comedy, about a really ambitious, Mm -hmm. countless comedian who ultimately kidnaps a popular talk show host played by Jerry Lewis in a beautiful, dramatic performance. And Scorsese said he is both characters. He's the ambitious outsider who will stop at nothing to achieve his goal, and he's the successful celebrity who's essentially lonely and vulnerable. And you see a lot of group identification with him. He really does identify as a New Yorker and as an Italian. Uh, He described his neighborhood growing up saying, I lived in a Sicilian village most of my life. There was us and there was the world. And then at one point he said um, he started thinking of himself as more Italian than American until he spent more time in Italy and realized, oh, no, wait a minute, I'm, I'm really American. I don't understand a lot of the way people interact in Italy. And he had a re- and has, well, I guess his parents are dead now, but like 
yeah, always had a really strong, close relationship with his parents. And you'll see both of his parents in cameo roles, sometimes even just as extras in a lot of his movies and at odd places in the credits. And that's from right from the start. You know, his mother is in Mean Streets. His father consulted of like, how do, how do the old Italian men play cards in Raging Bull? You know, he wanted their authenticity. And he would have them over for dinner every Sunday night. They'd have a big Italian meal. There was this big family orientation to him. Great. Thanks, TJ. Yeah, so I, you know, all excellent points. And I do just want to reiterate that uh, what TJ was describing as the unhealthy range of the six there with Scorsese is the unhealthy range, right? I mean, people tend to often fixate on the negative things that we say rather than the more positive things. So, you know, TJ was describing the more negative elements of that. And absolutely, right? One of the things I, I really appreciated about these movies was showing that Sixes don't have to be these fearful, timid people they often get stereotyped to be in the Enneagram world, right? So, um, you know, there are some pretty scary, dangerous sixes out there, right, who I wouldn't want to mess with, you know? And uh, so I think it kind of busts the stereotype of the Woody Allen, nebbishy sort of six, right, uh, in, in a really nice way. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, I want to be careful about jumping to uh, sort of armchair psychologist conclusions and analysis of people. But in Scorsese's childhood, as he describes it, there was the church, there was movies, and then there were the gangsters out there on the street. Right. And his life seems to be this exploration of where do I find safety and what price do I have to pay for that safety? Right. So in some of the movies that we see, for example, this is what Mean Streets was pretty much about. Right. What price do I have to pay for faith? Okay, that's certainly the movie Silence, right? I mean, boy, oh boy, that's what that whole movie's about, right? What price do I have to pay for this comfort I get in my faith with the gangsters, right? I feel safe there. You know, Henry Hill starts off with, you know, as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster, okay? But boy, oh boy, does he pay a price for that strength and stability and security he gets by being a gangster, Okay. And we see this over and over again. And um, so for, for Scorsese in his work, it is, how do I find solid ground? What price do I have to pay for those fleeting feelings of security? Right. And where do I find the next one? It almost seems as if movies are his place of refuge, right? Uh, by immersing himself in films, this is where I feel okay. And this is what I think has made him such a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. In that very refuge, he gives himself permission to just be with the ambiguities that he's exploring. His movies yes. do not tell you yeah. what to think about these characters. They don't tell you, right. they don't telegraph a happy ending or a moral ending. It, they leave it up to you to see where you come down with all this. And I think, yes. like any great artist, he's working out what he really feels and believes and what he's discovered about that in his films. All right. So with that, let's uh, let's jump into the movies. Okay. So we're going to start with Mean Streets. And, and Russ, I was thrilled to hear this. this is the first time you've watched Mean Streets, so I'm interested in hearing your reaction to it. But uh, TJ, why don't you set up Mean Streets for us? Tell us what that movie's about. 
Okay, so this is a summary of Mean Streets, and like all of our summaries, there will be spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen these movies and wants to see them without anything being <laughs> yeah. spoiled. You might want to skip ahead this part. Right. So Mean yeah. Streets is the story. The, the oh, newest of these movies is 30 years old. If you haven't seen it yet, it's your fault. Okay, so spoiler alert. Go, go ahead. So Mean Streets is the story of Charlie, played by Harvey Keitel, a young Harvey Keitel, who lives in New York's Lower East Side in the early 70s. And there's two sides to his life. He's an observant Catholic. We see him at St. Patrick's Cathedral lighting a candle and praying. And he's also a small-time gangster. And he's friends with the irresponsible and high-energy Johnny Boy, played by young Robert De Niro, who owes money to multiple loan sharks. Charlie's also secretly dating Johnny's cousin, Teresa, who has epilepsy. And he's trying to balance all of these elements in his life. And... The mobster that he's under is Johnny's uncle. So there's a connection through his friend Johnny to this. So Johnny eventually provokes the loan shark who's been after him the entire movie. And he tells him off after repeatedly promise that he will finally pay him. He just says, no, I'm not going to pay you. And then pisses him off, then leaves. And then that loan shark pursues Charlie and Johnny in a car and shoots them. Shooting Johnny in the neck, injuring Charlie in the hand. The movie leaves it ambiguous. Does he die? Does he change his life? What happens? And just as a point of interest, the movie has been endorsed by numerous people in the criminal world as being an accurate portrayal of that life in that time and place. Uh, wonderful cameo from David Carradine, right? So this movie was made in 1973, and I, I don't recall if the, the TV series Kung Fu had come out yet, which kind of lost, launched David Carradine to fame. But he has a small part where he is just a guy in a bar who gets shot by someone played by his brother, right? Uh, I think Robert Carradine was, was, was the one who showed up. But just this kind of random act of violence that sort of pops out of nowhere in, in, in the middle of this movie. And that kind of sets the tone for it. Now, it's clearly a low-budget movie. It was made for $500,000, which even in 1973 was not a very big budget for a film. And, you know, not a big box office success. It made $3 million in the box office, but clearly has stood the test of time as an important movie. Russ, tell us about your reaction to Mean Streets and what six-ish themes you saw in it. I certainly had heard of this movie and, and knew about it. I had a lot of responses to it. One was it helped me remember how grungy New York was in the 1970s. <laughs> Some of us were there in those days. and uh -huh. But, you know, but just the sort of... Uh, it was seen as very revolutionary at the time for the naturalness of the talk and everything. It wasn't like lines being delivered. It sounded like people in this particular social group talking as they talked. But I thought it was interesting as the it's seen, generally speaking, as the first really Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese movie. He had done a few yeah. for other for hire. He did Boxcar Bertha for Roger Corman, and he'd done his own first one called Who's That Knocking at My Door? But this is the first Scorsese movie that's really a Scorsese movie. If you, but I was struck yeah. by how much all of the themes in all of his movies are there in this first one. They're all right there. The, and as you were already mentioning in the lead-up, TJ, that way his Catholicism is there as a through line, but it doesn't hit you over the head with it. But you get the story of this man who does believe in this in a way that some of his friends laugh at him in various points, but there's, it's, it's, he'll just utter a little line of scripture at a certain moment where you don't expect it. And he's dealing with these people, and he's torn between, as a Christian, 
caring for these very, very damaged people in his life. Johnny Boy is nuts. He's a mess. He's dangerous. He's, he's reckless. He, his actions endanger other people. And all the people that could potentially open the door for Henry's character to go forward, tell him to get rid of this guy. Leave him behind. Don't. But something in him can't do that. You know, it, it, I think of the line uh, from, you know, Cain and Abel in, in the book of Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? And the correct answer is supposed to be yes. Yes, you are. And, and he feels responsible, even though it's going to cost him tremendously, he feels responsible to care for these, the, the girlfriend who has epilepsy that people are telling him, Dumper and his crazy friend yeah, Johnny. They call Boy. her mentally mentally defective, right? So right. again, there's this theme of you know the, the, the outcasts. Right? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but he is determined to stay a friend of these outcasts. The other thing the film deals with a lot, and it's a huge Scorsese theme in all of his movies, is the idea of penance, like atoning for your sins. The idea that's so central to Judaism in, in Yom Kippur, right? And there's a weird little thing he does throughout the film, which is he keeps putting his hand in fire. He touches flames. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not like some kind of counterphobic thing. It's like him enduring suffering and, in a sense, doing his own penance. The movie starts with him talking about, you know, you don't get penance from going to church. You get penance out in life. So there's this whole yeah interesting film about how does this man live a, a righteous life when the whole structure of his life is against everything that he most purely believes. There's an early interview with Martin Scorsese about this film, and he said, actually not so cryptically, he says, it's a film about a saint in the modern times. He says, how does one live a life guided by grace, guided by forgiveness, guided by every Christian value, when the whole world around you is the antithesis of that. So, you know, I've, I've found that really interesting. And, and of course, the performances, you really see the early promise of Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. They both deliver great performances yes. in this film. Yeah, it, it really is something because Keitel is the star of this movie, right? Yes. And, you know, De Niro is sort of a, a supporting character. And, you know, even though Keitel is a big star, he, you know, is not the De Niro level of star, right? That, uh, that they, they took on. But, but absolutely a, a great thing. And, and I was also struck, just as an aside here, by how handsome Harvey Keitel was at that age. You know, I mean, he was yeah. just really a strikingly good looking guy, you know, and, uh, yeah. which, you know, I hadn't ever really thought about before when I think of Harvey Keitel. But anyway, uh, so, um, yeah, great, great ideas there. Certainly this, this squirrely intensity of Johnny Boy, the De Niro character, right? It's just this bouncy, frenetic all over the place. And you could see him mixing this, you know, you know, braggadocio with fear, right? At one point, they're standing out in the street. He thinks he sees somebody that he owes money to, and he jumps behind the car to hide, you know, and then that sort of thing. So there's this bouncing back and forth with this sort of over compensatory, you know, quality of anxiety. Another, to, to carry with the theme of religion here, here. So you have Johnny Boy, who is, I don't know, you could put him in the character of, you know, somebody who's, 
you know, almost childish. Uh, He's a lost lamb. <laughs> <laughs> a lost lamb for sure, right? Uh, the the poor and destitute almost, you know. So here you've got the Harvey Keitel character of Charlie, you know, the, the, the sort of Jesus stand-in, right, of caring for, you know, the poor, the sickly, you know, the, the woman who's epileptic, right? Sort of, in a sense, leading battle against or at least feeling conflicted about the money lenders, you know, the money exchangers that, you know, Jesus kicked out of the temple because the whole movie is about owing money to loan sharks and all those sorts of things. There's also a very Jobian theme to this movie and many of Scorsese's work, right? And even very explicitly in Cape Fears, we'll see references to the book of Job, which is about the suffering of the faithful person. Yeah. So, um, great stuff. Uh, TJ, anything you would add about uh, Mean Streets and uh, Enneagram Type 6? Yeah, a couple things. Something that, you know, I, I, re I read this quote, and then I had to watch the movie with this in mind. Uh, something Scorsese said is that Charlie uses other people thinking that he's helping them. But by believing that, he's not only ruining mm. them, but ruining himself. He said when he fights with Johnny against the door in the street, he acts like he's doing it for others, but it's a matter of his own pride, the first sin in the Bible. And so he said, we see the shifting of trust, how Johnny trusts Charlie, but God, he's got his problems. And then Charlie trusts Johnny, but he's using him. So how is he using him? And, you know, the movie doesn't hit you over the head with this, but it's Johnny's uncle who's the mobster that Charlie is working under and deferring to. So by being friends with this ne'er-do-well, that's his in to the world of organized crime. So he is both Jesus, but he's also this opportunist in some ways. And this churchgoer. And yeah, Russ, like you said, you know, he'll mention the Bible or he'll, he'll talk about how he admires St. Francis of Assisi a number of times. So he's got this faithful side of him. But then in this other scene, at one point, he's at a bar and he has a drink poured over his fingers, almost like he's mocking the Christian mass, the transubstantiation. You know, he's making a joke out of his own Catholicism in the setting of a bar. And I thought that was really interesting. Another thing, too, about the relationship yeah. between Charlie and Johnny Boy is it's a lot like a double act. You know, especially when we first meet Johnny Boy, their dialogue is practically right out of Abbott and Costello. And there's a lot of interaction between the two of them like that. You know, there's a scene where they're on the street just playfully fighting with garbage can lids. Like they're joking around. And, mm -hmm. you know, Russ, something that you wrote in The Wisdom of the Enneagram is hanging out is a big six thing. It can just feel good to be with another person, to be spending time with them, to know that I've got this bond. And, you know, this is solid between us. About that bond, one other thing that just struck me, and I see this in a number of films that have sixish themes, is that in a certain way, those two characters represent two opposing sides of the six psyche. So in a sense, there are two different sides of Martin Scorsese. And it is in a certain way his most autobiographical film. But there's the side of him that is very counterphobic, kind of self-destructive, kind of doesn't give a shit, just going to, that's Johnny Boy. And that's part of the six psyche. Sixes rock out. They get crazy sometimes. And that's an impulse that he sees in himself. Whereas the other side of him, you know, is the Harvey Cartel character is, is trying to navigate, be conservative, be careful, play things, create some kind of safety and security for himself. So it's almost like the phobic and counterphobic sides of him, you know, fighting it out at not always at the highest level. There's a certain truth in Johnny Boy's perspective, even though he's kind of a jerk. And there's yeah. a certain truth 
in Henry's perspective, even though he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. Just to emphasize what you're saying, Russ, something that I had to listen carefully to discern this once I'd read it. About half of the voiceover from Harvey Keitel's character is actually Martin Scorsese's voice. So that's, in some ways, his, and his voice is very similar, at least in the way it's recorded and processed. But mm. in some way, that's almost his message to you that this is me, or this represents mm. some of me. Another thing that I noticed in this, and again, a huge motif in a lot of Scorsese stuff, is contrasts. And this is, often comes off in this way in terms of what scene follows what other scene. So early in the movie, you know, there's scenes that they shot in the San Gennaro Festival, which is this huge Italian street festival in Little Italy. And then we cut immediately from that. Streets full of people celebrating, walking, music playing, eating food, decorations all over the place. Cut to junkies shooting up in the bathroom of a bar, like right away. Or, you know, when we first meet Harvey Keitel's character, he's in the church, he's lighting a candle, he's, he's in St. Patrick's Cathedral, this beautiful church. And then we cut from there to the main bar where we're at often. And it's, there are strippers and the lighting is red. It's almost like we've just suddenly gone from heaven to hell. And he's a character that lives in both. So there's this pendulum swinging between opposites that happens a lot. And yeah. it's almost like he's deliberately yes. plunging you from hot to cold to back. A, a point that uh, you guys were both making there about the group, I think, is, is one that I, I want to emphasize there. I completely agree that what Charlie was doing by surrounding himself with these characters that needed his help was creating his family, right? Creating his tribe in a way that is a very six-ish thing, right? So even if our relationship is me taking care of you, at least I know we have this bond, right? At least I know that you're part of my group here, which is something, again, that's about providing foundation and security for sixes, even if it's imperfect, at least it's something, right? At least it's something I can lean on. It's consistent. I know Johnny Boy is going to make my life miserable, right? But I know he's there, right? I know that I can count on him, even if it's for that, to, you know, make me crazy in some ways. Um, good stuff. Okay, so Mean Streets. If you have not seen Mean Streets, I highly recommend it. I want to say this uh, about Mean Streets and, you know, all of Scorsese's movies, at least the ones that we're talking about. They're products of their time, right? So, you know, trigger warnings, you know, should be noted uh, if you're sensitive about... Oh, I don't know, almost anything that's found offensive these days, right? Uh, with, you know, uh, anything from racial slurs to extreme violence and, you know, misogyny and all these other sort of things. But again, they're depictions of their time. I don't get, unlike, say, a Quentin Tarantino, who sometimes I think just delves into violence just to be shocking and just to, you know, kind of almost enjoy it, I don't ever get the sense that Scorsese is enjoying any of the things that he's depicting, right? It really is an attempt to depict life in a real way. Okay. So uh, trigger warnings made for these films. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. 
However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So with this, we're going to move on to After Hours. And uh, After Hours was a comedy, an uncomfortable comedy, but a comedy A comedy of sorts. <laughs> a comedy of sorts. A comedy nightmare, one could say, because it's filled with a whole bunch of bad stuff happening to a poor guy, right, who all he wanted to do was to meet a girl, right, and, and get a, uh, a a bagel and cream cheese uh, plaster of Paris paperweight, right? So, but, <laughs> but After Hours is a comedy, and it is based, it was made in 1985, released. I remember seeing this in the theater and just laughed through the whole darn thing when I I wasn't cringing and climbing under my seat. It takes place in the Soho of the time. So this is what, what are we going back 36 years? Um, and I'm sure Russ can attest. And I was just happened to be in Soho last weekend. And I can tell you, it is a really, really different place than it was in this movie. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll just give a real quick recap of this. So uh, stars Griffin Dunn, and a bunch of other folks that I'll touch on in a minute. But after a long and boring day at work, Paul Hackett, a computer data entry worker, meets Marcy Franklin, played by uh, Rosanna Arquette. Uh, Paul Hackett is played by Griffin Dunn in a local cafe in New York City. Uh, Marcy tells him she's living with a sculptor named Kiki Bridges who makes and sells plaster of Paris paperweights resembling cream cheese and bagels and leaves him her number. Now, he just wants to meet her because this was, uh, I mean, peak Rosanna Arquette as far as I'm concerned. She was pretty good looking in this scene. And so one could imagine while he would jump into a taxi and drive all the way from uptown to downtown in Soho with his last apparently last $20 uh, in a taxi to go meet her. So once he gets there, all sorts of crazy things happen. He enters this pretty much nightmare of a night. He encounters her roommate, Kiki, who is creating a paper mache sculpture of a guy and kind of kneeling down in a screaming position. Let's see. Through the course of their sort of date, Paul gets this impression that Rosanna Arquette is covered in burns in some way, right? And so he happens to be freaked out by this because he had a horrible childhood experience in the burn ward uh, as, as a child. And so he gets a little freaked out about this. So he runs off and flees this. You know, he kind of runs out on the date. Yeah. Uh, he's One trying to get home. plot point, Mario, uh, is that on yes. route to their place, he loses the only $20 oh, that he you. has. Of course. He's of, in the taxi and course. he... he absentmindedly puts the money down in the ashtray and it blows out the window. So he's broke yes. when he goes down there, which is kind of yes. creates its own set yes. of problems. <laughs> Well, that, 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 that's exactly right. And it does sort of set it up. So thank you for pointing that out. And even that taxi ride downtown 
was a nightmare, right? He gets into it and the guy's going, you know, a million miles an hour and he's hanging on to the hand, you know, the hand grip and, you know, flowing and his money, his only $20 flies out the window, leaving him stranded there with just a hand, a pocket full of a bit of change, uh, which we will see is not enough to get on the subway when he flees the date with Patricia Arquette because it's a little bit after midnight and at the stroke of midnight, they doubled the tack the uh, subway fare from 75 cents to a dollar 50 okay so he tries to get on the uh the subway and runs into probably the biggest cop in all of new york city at the time right so he jumps back he uh goes into a bar uh where he meets uh what is the name of the guy uh tom and who just so happens to be the husband of the Rosanna Arquette character, right? Uh, they, they're estranged, okay? And so he convinces Tom that, you know, to lend him some money. He says, okay, go back. Here are my keys to my apartment. Go get some money, bring the keys back. You, you know, I'll loan you the money to go home. Well, he gets accused of breaking and entering. He encounters Cheech and Chong, who play uh, two thieves who, you know, make a couple of appearances throughout the film. He has to go back to um, Kiki's apartment to find that Marcy committed suicide uh, while he was away. And um, so this causes another set of problems. He goes back to Tom, this is where he finds out when he gets there. He, Tom gets a phone call at the bar saying that his, you know, Marcy committed suicide. He runs off. So again, Paul is stuck. He goes to another place, meets a waitress played by Terry Gar in a great beehive hairdo, who is kind of a stalker sort of character. He ends up back at her place, but running out on her like he did with Marcy. Mm. The Terry Gar character doesn't take this too well. She's very offended. So she makes copies of him. Of, of a drawing that she made of him. <laughs> Yes, yes. So she drew his she drew his picture, and they're now accusing him of being a burglar, right? So now all the neighbors are looking for him. He meets Catherine O'Hara, who is a Mister Softy ice cream truck driver. At first, she's trying to flirt with him, and of course, she turns out to be crazy as well. Before you know it, the whole neighborhood is riding around on the Mister Softy truck, looking to catch him and and uh, make him pay for his non-crimes. He ends up back at a bar that we didn't even mention, the Berlin Club, which when he first went there was kind of a punk place where they tried to shave his head and give him a mohawk. But when he ends up back there, still looking for Kiki and Horst, uh, watch the movie if you want to know who Horst is, there's gone and there's only one woman played by Verna Bloom, uh, an older woman. He's got a quarter left. He uses it to play Is That All There Is. He dances with Verna Bloom. And the mob comes looking for him. She hides him in her basement apartment and decides the only way to really hide him from the people that are looking for him is to, yes, create a paper mache statue around him in pretty much the same pose as Kiki's statue. Now, another plot point here is, yes, he's hidden from the, the, the mob looking for him, but she decides not to let him out of the netting and paper mache, which is, you know, now, uh, you know, keeping him in a cage, kind of like the uh, the Count of Monte Cristo almost. She finishes making a paper mache statue out of him, and Cheech and Chong come back in, see this statue, 
steal it from her apartment. And they go on a crazy ride uptown. They hit a bump. He pops out and lands right back at work as sun rises and they're opening the gates at the company that he works with. He dusts himself back off and goes back into work. So this is a nightmare evening from hell. It's funny the whole way, but an uncomfortable funny. I'll tell you, so this movie was out in 1985. I was 22, 23 years old at that time. And re-watching it, I was struck by how well this movie captured the zeitgeist of the 80s, um, and particularly Manhattan in the 80s. Now, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, lived in Philadelphia at the time, but would on, occasionally go, on occasion go up to Manhattan. And this was really it. This There were a lot of flashbacks in this movie for me. So, Russ, you're a New York guy. Yeah. Tell us about After Hours, Enneagram Type 6, and Manhattan of the Era. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I wa- I just rewatched it in preparation for our our, our podcast here, and uh, yeah, it was it was a little trip of nostalgia. I knew people who looked like all these characters. That is an accurate depiction. <laughs> it was funny to remember Soho. I was sharing with you guys a lot. I was living in Greenwich Village at the time, which is a neighborhood above Soho, north of Soho. But as some of the artists, people that I knew, musicians I knew, got a little bit of money. The thing was to go buy lofts in Soho, but we're always nervous for them because Soho was kind of a spooky, abandoned kind of neighborhood back then, which as Mario was saying, it's not like that now, to say the least. But um, I was struck by, you know, sixes are the kings and queens of pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Enneagram. And uh-huh. it, I used to joke that six has probably created Murphy's Law. And anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And the whole comedy about this is ju- it just keeps getting worse and worse. Every time you think that he or the character, Griffin Dunn's character, thinks he's getting out of the situation, something even worse <laughs> happens. And it's just this spiral mm-hmm. until he's finally imprisoned in a statue you know, it's. Uh, I always thought Quentin Tarantino yeah. explored that a little bit in Pulp Fiction to that kind of story structure of this declining mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. But I, I also thought that one thing I've noticed in a lot of the Scorsese movies is that he will do brief visuals that are symbolic of the theme of the whole movie. And if you watch mm-hmm. Scorsese movies character carefully you'll see these little scenes one that he does that is this whole movie in a single scene when he's with uh julie the terry gar character he she's they he's gone back to return the keys to the bartender who was trying to help him she was working for that bartender and quit and she says well come over to my place across the street and he looks over and it's just a single shot but it's her bed surrounded with mouse traps. That's the whole movie. <laughs> right there. The bed where uh-huh. he wants to go uh-huh. as a male and gratify himself. All the trouble he gets into in this movie is trying to get gratification. But all around the bed, mouse traps, craziness, strange behavior. Not just mouse traps, but one of them had a mouse in it, right? That was yes. still kind of kicking, right? So still struggling, right. So it's just it's yeah. it's that's it. Here he is. That trying to get somewhere and 
there's all these mousetraps arrayed against him. There's so much of the film. Uh, somebody else, there was a film critic, I remember, talking about how it was like, the film was like a rat trying to find its way through a maze. And that, you know, and just all the false turns, and you think you're getting out of here, but that's not the way out. And there's a lot of that sense of it. But I think in terms of Six, it's just simply that source of a lot of anxiety for Sixes, but also that the root of a lot of point six humor is this idea that the best laid plans <laughs> of mice and men tend to go astray, tend to go off. You, it, and and the other theme that you'll see in a lot of Scorsese movies is what gets the person out of trouble is never anything they did or anything in their control. Mm-hmm. We'll see that in Cape Fear, too. Mm-hmm. There's a way that mm-hmm. there. it's Scorsese's little way of saying, I don't get this whole bigger picture, but there are bigger forces at work than what I'm paying attention to. And that is a sixth yeah. thing. The sixth, mm-hmm. I'm trying to pay attention to the details and handle things and just deal with situations as they're coming at me. And when you're in that sixth fixation, it seems like life is coming at you and you're just trying to manage it, deal with it, right? And that's what this character is doing. But at the same time, there are bigger energies, forces, destinies at work that are actually deciding the outcome. And my little efforts don't seem to be what influences that. So, you know, you definitely get a lot of that in in this film, too. I just just want to follow up on that, Russ, because it's a really great point that I hadn't picked up on. There is this element of chance and luck and fate or, you know, determined things happening to people, but they never feel contrived in a Scorsese movie. And I think that's part of his genius, right? It's like, no, you can believe that that would actually happen. Yeah, it's It's not not like like Deus Ex Machina. It's not that. Exactly. TJ. Tell us about After Hours. I'm curious about your reaction to it, TJ. You're a bit younger. Probably didn't have that Manhattan experience in 1985. But uh, what did you think of the movie? Not directly, but as a youngster watching TV and movies, you know, the thing that you always heard about New York is it is very dangerous. You know, you don't ride the subway at night. Uh, you're going to get mugged and all of these things. And it's dirty and it's loud and all of those things. So I was, my first trip to Manhattan was in 1998. And I was terrified until I actually got there and realized, oh, this is actually pretty great. Of course, it had cleaned up a lot by then. Uh, The thought that I had, you know, just building on what both of you were saying about this movie, it's almost like the movie was Griffin Dunn's character's six-ish anxious projection of, if I call this Marcy woman, what might happen? Well, I might go to her place, but maybe she lives with this crazy sculptor, and then maybe there's going to be all of these things, and then maybe a boy, S&M boyfriend is going to come over, and what if, what if I get out of there, and I don't have my money, and then I, I don't have enough money for the subway because they've suddenly raised the fare, and I, nobody told me. I'm like, oh, okay, forget it. I'm just not going to go. So it's, it's like this cascading nightmare <laughs> that he's imagining, but of course, there's no big reveal at the end of the movie that this was all just a fantasy. It really did happen. So another way to look at it right. is it's almost like it's a comedic equivalent to a Hitchcock movie like North by Northwest, where someone just gets caught in this web of intrigue that is no fault of theirs. So, you know, one of the big plot points, as you mentioned when you were doing the summary of it, is he's mistakenly accused of being this serial burglar and a vigilante mob is coming after him and his drawing is being put up on, you know, telephone poles all over the place so he can't escape. He didn't actually burgle anything. He's not a criminal, but he has no way of proving that he's not. Right. 
very much like the Cary Grant character in North by Northwest, who's mistaken for this person that he isn't, which sends him into this cascading nightmare. So it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's this, like, I didn't do anything wrong, like, but everybody thinks that I did something wrong, and I I can't get out of it, so what am I supposed to do with that? Another element that I thought was six-ish was we see a few moments of reactivity with uh, his character. So there's a scene when things are going pretty well with him and Marcy, seemingly, but he can hear some whispers between her and her roommate just out of earshot. And there's some implication that maybe she's covered with burn scars from head to toe. Or, you know, there's just, there's information that isn't quite being given to him. So he's left in this kind of anxious situation of like, where do I stand? What, what's going on? Do I even know anything? And it's hard to tell if it's because of that or is it just six-ish self-sabotage that at one point they're sitting on her bed. It looks like their date is going exactly the way any young man who pursues a hot blonde would want it to go. She offers him a joint. He smokes it. And then he flips out, seemingly for no reason, saying, where did this pot come from? And she says, it's Columbia. No, it's not. Whoever told you this is a liar, and you're a liar. And he just gets up and storms out. So he shoots himself in the foot. And then later he does a very similar thing with Terry Gar. He suddenly yells at her and then immediately apologizes. Uh, Russ, something I once remember you saying about Six's fighting is that there can be this alternating attack and retreat. Attack and retreat. So... uh, that showed up with him a number of times. I thought that was a really interesting, subtle level of it. This is what a stressed out six can be like in spite of themselves. You know, one, one of the things that really stood out for me with this movie is he starts off in this generic, banal office environment, right? Just all these desks. He's a word processor, right? This is when that was actually a thing. And he's very bored as he's in, as he's trying to teach this new guy how to do something played by Bronson Pinchot, a nice little Bronson Pinchot before he was, you know, slightly bigger, you know, uh, uh, cameo there, but it's, and there's this, you know, I, I, I forget what the classical piece playing was, but it's this very nice, you know, classical kind of Mozart music. piece. Yeah. You're right. Right. You know, so kind of bright and light. And then, and then it's like he descends into hell. Right. So he goes from the, you know, the surface world down into hell. Right. And then emerges back out from it, covered with dust and, you know, paper mache, you know, glue and all these sort of things, right back to this more banal world. So it's almost like, again, this sixth sort of fear that, you know, everything might seem okay, but there's really bad stuff out there. And you better be careful and better watch out. Yeah. Hold on to what you've got. Yeah. You know what movie it reminded me of watching it this time? It reminded me of Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, say more about that. The same thing. A similar theme explored where Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, they're together, they have their little life, but they're both kind of dissatisfied with it. So Tom Cruise goes out in search of knowledge and experience and gets himself into really deep, nightmarish trouble. Although in the Kubrick movie, it ain't a comedy. There's nothing funny. Right, and right. and he, he gets right. into great difficulty in this underworld and so forth and ends up back where he started again, realizing, you know, this ain't so bad after all. Uh, and and right. so there's, there's right. that sense of, again, this sixth sense of like, I'm trying to have some kind of raft in, in the stormy waters of life. 
And it seems interesting to kind of go explore what's out there in those waters. But you know what? I want to be able to come back to the raft. You know, I yes. so there's that theme. And I, but again, I was really surprised how it reminded me of the, the Kubrick film. And, and I'll just say as a, a as a final thought for me, it, it really did, you know, for me, again, watching the movie for the first time in quite a while, uh, it, it just so well captured my memories of New York at the time, but just the, the, the general zeitgeist at the time. I mean, I was living in Philadelphia at the time and had evenings that were not quite that bad, but, you know, it was, um, you know, it was kind of a different time because uh, AIDS had not really become a, it was it was bubbling up, but it wasn't really affecting the zeitgeist yet. So it was the last moments of freedom and, you know, quite frankly, the potential for random sex at almost any time, you know. So you could kind of go out to a diner and you could, you know, meet somebody and you could say, hey, you know, this could happen. And then in a very short time, that all sort of shut down, right? Everybody's like, whoa, 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 you know, and social, social and sexual mores changed quite a bit. But there was just this feeling of, you know, almost, again, without beating this metaphor too much, when there's that much freedom, Bad things come with it. Danger comes with it, right? When you when you don't have safeguards in environments, you know, the bleakness of New York at the time, you know, and how desolate it was. Danger exists when there are no guardrails, no structures to keep us uh, safe. So. And no bank cards. What was that? No bank cards. Right, no, it was no right AT- before ATMs. No, no 24-hour ATMs and debit No cards. ATM machines, no. Yeah, so if you lose right. your last 20 bucks, yeah. that's yeah. it. And no cell phones, of course. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.